Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. On this podcast, we'll talk about things like purpose, legacy, love, influence, sex, success, wealth, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review if you've enjoyed what you've heard, subscribe, and join the other thousands and thousands of changemakers in our community on Facebook, or go to www.mantalks.com for more blog posts, podcasts, and videos from our live event. Joining me today is a special guest by the name of Todd R. Tresseter. And Todd and I are going to take a deep dive into wealth, abundance, investments, uh, and basically how to set yourself up for financial success, financial longevity, and how to basically retire with enough in the bank and how to figure out how to do that. So uh, Todd has a really incredible background. He's got a BA in economics from University of California. He is a member of economics honor study and uh, the dean's list. He's a serial entrepreneur since childhood. He's built a ton of businesses and he retired, quote unquote, retired at the age of 35 after building a, uh, a, a hedge fund investment. Uh, he was a hedge fund investment manager and he was responsible for over $25 million worth of uh, portfolios. So He's done some incredible work in the finance industry. And basically, him and I are going to talk about understanding wealth and understanding money mindset, because that's a big component of it. So we talk about the mindset of money, how to move through some of those blocks. Uh, Todd gives us some very real, tangible, and tactical uh, resources of what we can look into in terms of our investment. We talk a little bit about cryptocurrency and how that's going to impact uh, you know, in investments. And uh, he gives some examples of, of where you can actually start to invest your money, how you can start to earn more money to invest, and some of those tactics. So this is a very hands-on uh, approach to finances. And I, I hope that you've got a pen and paper handy because even I found myself sitting there being like, okay, well, like, what was that? Was that term? What is he talking about? And, uh, and really wanting to write some of the things down because some of the stuff that he talks about, um, you know, S&P index funds, where we can put our money for the highest rate of return. Uh, there's some really, really great insights. So I hope you are ready. And without any other further ado, I would like to welcome on Todd Tresseter. All right. Thanks for having me on the show, Connor. Awesome. So let's just dive right in. I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today about you know wealth and, and uh, generating wealth and what that looks like. But first, I want to start off with the question. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So tell me, tell- it sounds the- serious. Uh, I know it's just sound, it sounds really serious. I know. Uh, but tell me in the audience. Tell me about your sex life, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Tell me, tell me about your weirdest kinkiest story, Todd. Tell me about story, your Todd. affairs. Um, <laughs> now, yeah, now, now that I've said that we're going to talk about wealth, we're actually going to talk about uh, uh, abundance in relationships. <laughs> Um, yeah, tell, so tell, uh, tell the listeners a story about a defining moment that has made you who you are today. Right. So I teach financial independence, you know, advanced strategies in retirement planning, wealth building. And so defining moment that led to that was I was finishing up my degree down at UCLA. I, my degree is from UC Davis, University of California Davis, but I, I finished up down at UCLA cause I had a bunch of buddies down there and we were having a great time partying down in Hollywood and all that. And so I was just getting some final credits to round out. And I remember I was riding my bike through Santa Monica Park, which is just, if you don't know it, it's it's been in many, many films. It's this stunning location right on the bluffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean at the tip of Santa Monica. Absolutely beautiful. And it's a place where the homeless hang out, right? Because there's all these benches and shaded areas and it's gorgeous. I mean, gosh, whether you're rich or you're homeless, it's one of the most beautiful places in the earth that you could hang out, right? And so the homeless live there on the benches and in the park and on the grass. And then they have like all these food trucks that come by that feed them and health trucks that come by that serve them and all this stuff. And I was riding my bike down. I was going to get on the area along the beach and cruise down along the beach. And it dawned on me because I had all these friends graduating from college, right? Cause I was just getting extra units. And 
I realized, wow, these homeless people have more freedom than my friends who are graduating from college. You know, like my friends that were graduating, they were going off to Cubicle Nation and they were working, you know, 60, 80 hour weeks and they might get, you know, a little bit of time in the evening or on one day on the weekend to do their laundry. But then I was looking at these guys just relaxing. And if these guys got foul weather, they just go to the library and all the services go to the library to serve them there. And I was just like, man, so I, I didn't want to be a bum, but I looked at it and I said, you know, I don't want to suck up to the man and I don't want to get stuck in this treadmill lifestyle that I see all my friends coming out of college doing. And so I decided then and there that if I was going to lead a financial life, which I, I do, if I was going to have to lead a financial life and I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, then I may as well design my life to result in financial independence. Now, that doesn't sound revolutionary or like a defining moment in your life, but if you actually take it to heart, it is. Because I arranged all my affairs to result in financial independence. I arranged how I spent my time, what I studied, how I arranged my finances, what I spent money on, what I didn't. I'd literally designed my life to result in financial independence. And 12 years later, I had it. It's very cool, man. Yeah, I think uh, it, it definitely is a defining moment, uh, in my opinion, from my perspective. And it's, and it's also kind of interesting to see the polarity in such a sort of like such a stark contrasting way, right? Because I would imagine that a lot of your friends were also graduating university with a shit ton of debt, <laughs> right? Which is what's, what's the average degree cost now? A couple hundred thousand dollars in, in the States. So I would imagine that, you know, it's very interesting and very polarizing to see on one hand, you know, homeless people that are, it's sort of not that they're having things brought to them, but they're, they're sort of like living this life and this, you know, the life that oftentimes that's chosen. And then you have these guys that are going to go off to what you call cubicle nation, which, <laughs> which is, which I think is, is great. So well, yeah, you know, funny, they come back and sure they have a nice apartment and they come back in their flashy car, their BMW or their Porsche, and they're wearing cool clothes. But if you look at what they actually do with their day, they're stuck in cubicle nation, you know, and they've got pressures from their job and all these things. Whereas these guys are sitting around talking and reading books and playing their guitar and riding their bike. And it's like, yeah, I really don't know who's got it figured out better here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I was walking the streets the other day. We, we just moved into a new apartment in, in New York City and, and I was walking over to uh, the bank to exchange some Canadian money into American money, which is a whole other thing. But there was, there was this woman who was sitting on the sidewalk and she had like this massive blanket and she had her backpacks and she had a dog with her and she was clearly homeless and she was sitting cross-legged reading a book on the streets on Park Ave. And there is just, there's chaos all around her, right? There's just like thousands of people walking everywhere. And as I was walking by, I looked over and she looked at me and she smiled and she was just chilling there reading a book and she seemed so peaceful. And I kind of got like five steps, six steps past her. And then I stopped and I turned around and, and I was, you know, obviously I was going to give her a couple of bucks and, and, and whatnot. And I did. And I said, you know, what, what are you doing out here? Why did you choose the streets? Like you could be anywhere. Why did you choose New York? And, uh, and she was like, yeah, you know, it's just, I like this lifestyle. I like watching people. I don't need much. I think that oftentimes people are, are, are doing too much in their lives and sacrificing too much of themselves in order to have all these material things. And we ended up having this like five to 10 minute dialogue about why she chose to be living where she's living. And I thought it was so interesting that, you know, here's somebody who kind of just has this complete freedom of choice, whether or not that's right or wrong, whether or not that that's whether she's like really happy with it or not is, is maybe not, you know, not the point that it's not irrelevant, but I thought it was really interesting to see somebody living that life that they've, that they've chosen. Yeah, so, best, best two bucks you ever spent for a cool conversation, huh? Yeah, yeah. I was, cause I was really fascinated. And, and I think for me, and you know, it's kind of funny that we're having this conversation today when I just had that experience yesterday. But I think that for me, it really started to shift my perception of what wealth is because we often look at wealth from strictly a money standpoint. And that's a big component of what you and I are going to dive yes, into today. But I would love for you to just sort of unpack and, and maybe define some of the parameters of what wealth means to you and what, uh, what you've seen really successful people, uh, how they maybe think about wealth differently. Well, first of all, nobody wants more money, right? What you want is what money, what you think money will buy you, right? And so first of all, let's define financial freedom. Financial freedom is cash flow from your investments exceeding your lifestyle expenses. 
right? So when you reach a point where your assets pay you more than it costs for you to live the lifestyle that you choose, then at that point, you're financially independent in perpetuity. Um, so you comfortable with that definition? All right. Mm -hmm. And so wealth is different though. Okay. So that's financial independence. That's strictly a financial equation. Wealth is different. Wealth is because you can have, you can be wealthy and you can be free long before you're financially independent. That's something a lot of people collapse and confuse. And so wealthy in my mind is you have the money you need to do what you choose to do with your life. And that kind of ties into our earlier conversation, but it's more, but you can connect it more to, you know, everybody listening and the life beyond just being a street person. So for example, you don't have to be financially independent to chase your entrepreneurial dream. You just have to have enough money to remain financially solvent and responsible during the temporary cash flow dip while you're pursuing that entrepreneurial dream. So those are very different things. So I don't know if that's making sense to you or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and in terms of our sort of pursuit of wealth and, you know, cause it's, it's a very common thing, especially I, I think in men, we have this sort of drive to build wealth, to, you know, be able to buy material things and sort of collect a bunch of stuff in our lives. So what are some of the pitfalls that you see people falling into when they, when they start to invest, when they start to build wealth, uh, and when they start to maybe come into money, uh, and, and pursuing their dreams? Well, they pursue stuff instead of experiences, right? A wealthy life is about mm. lots of amazing experiences. It's not about stuff. So the research is conclusive on this. There's been a lot of research studies on the connection between happiness and money. And once you get beyond abject poverty, there's not a huge relationship between having more money and having more happiness. So there's kind of this medium where you have the money you have. It goes back to my definition of wealth. You have the money you need to do what you want to do. So you're not having to order from the right side of the menu of life. You're not having to be limited by money. And yet it doesn't take that much more to have pretty much all you want in life. So using US standards as an example, you know, there's a number in, you know, I don't know what the number is, it depends on the area that you live, right? Like so New York City is going to be very different from Kansas City, Missouri. It's because they have different lifestyle costs. But there's some number, 20,000, 50,000, whatever the number is, where you're outside of abject poverty, you've got a comfortable bed, you've got healthy food, you got clean water, and you got a shelter and and utilities and that kind of thing. And then there's a level where you can live comfortably and pursue whatever you want. Maybe that's a hundred or a hundred and fifty thousand a year. And so in between there, much beyond that, you don't have dramatic improvements in lifestyle. You know, you can increase luxury, but it's not a material change in your happiness or a big change. And much below that number, then you have a significant drop in lifestyle. And so there's kind of this sweet spot range where you can have pretty much what you want and do pretty much what you want with your life. And so that is where you hit that wealth point, that freedom point to create what you want to create with your life. And that's where real wealth comes from is when you use the money to create what you want to create with your life. It's not about going out and getting the latest model Mercedes Benz, not picking on Mercedes. It's a perfectly fine car. Um, you could substitute the word Tesla in there if you wanted or whatever happens to be the, the transportation du jour, luxury transportation du jour. But anyway, it's not about pursuing that luxury. It's about pursuing quality of life. It's about pursuing the adventure of life, embracing the adventure of life and becoming the best version of yourself you can become through what you do with your life. Mm, interesting. So interesting, man. So, I mean, it sounds like a huge component of us attaining the sort of definition of wealth or, or in, in this, in this case, freedom that we're actually seeking really is reliant on our mindset. It sounds like a lot of what you talk about and, and teach is, is not only the sort of like logistics of finances and wealth, but also maybe the mindset that, that it goes into that. Well, you're close. It's both, right? So there's the science of finance, which you have to honor. It's all governed by mathematics and it's inviolable. And then you've got the personal side because we're not just computers, right? So you got the personal side and how we relate to money and how we relate to our lives. So you have to have both. So I actually have a course, a course series I teach called Seven Steps to Seven Figures. And where that came from is over the two decades that I've been coaching people or a decade and a half, I guess. Uh, let me think. No, it's two decades, two decades that I've been coaching people clients pretty much showed me that there's seven steps to the wealth building process. 
And the thing about them that's unique about the way I teach it is that they're paired. So you've got a financial step paired with a personal side. So for example, step one is your financial foundation. And that's like all the stuff that you do with a financial planner, right? You know, about owning your home and getting the right insurance and basic asset allocation for traditional passive index, you know, investment model. And, you know, all the, all the stuff, I, I boiled it all down to one course, right? And it's just the financial part of that, right? And then on the personal side is the habits and attitudes that lead to wealth. That, that was step two. So they're paired. Step one and step two form the foundation of your wealth, Right. Because if you have the wrong habits and attitudes, you're not going to get wealthy. It's just not going to work. And where this came from is I noticed I used to long, long ago, I used to coach both people getting out of debt as well as people building wealth. I don't accept the get out of debt clients anymore. Um, but I used to. And I had an interesting day one time where there was this juxtaposition where I went from get out of debt client to wealth building client to get out of debt client to wealth building client, kind of back to back. It was just they were booked that way. And I got off the phone and I was startled by the difference in the clients, that they were fundamentally different people. And I realized that this was true across the board, that, you know, the get out of debt clients had certain habits and attitudes and the wealth building clients had certain habits and attitudes and they were mere opposites of each other. And so what I realized was that their financial outcome was the mere reflection of their habits and attitudes that they were operating from. It's not the other way around. And so that's where the step two came from. Amazing. Well, that, I mean, that sounds like something that we should definitely dive into and unpack because I think that it'd be interesting to hear what are some of the habits and attitudes of, of people that maybe are in that debt space. And then what's the flip side of that, of what are the habits and attitudes look like for people that are generating abundance and, and building wealth? Yeah, we've got a lot to unpack here. So let me just, let me just hit one and then I'll connect it with step three and step four. Um, so one of them is self-responsibility, right? So my wealthy clients came from a position of self-responsibility. So it doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to them, but they tend to look at it from a position of self-responsibility where they made the decision, they're responsible, and they're always responsible for their actions and their outcomes. The debt clients were victims. So the opposite of self-responsibility is being a victim and things happened to them. It was always somebody else's fault they were a victim of circumstances, you know, so like they might be in debt because a medical problem, it wasn't their fault that they never bought insurance. It wasn't their fault that they didn't manage to accumulate savings. The medical problem just put them in debt. Do you see the difference? Whereas a self-responsible person would say, well, I never bought proper insurance. I never accumulated the savings and I took these various actions that led up to it. So while I didn't have an intention of resulting in medical debt, ultimately I'm responsible for it. So they're very different come from. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that would be an example of a habit and an attitude, you know, um, another like a habit. So that was an attitude. A habit would be like wealthy people tend to um, value knowledge and growth of knowledge. So they're avid readers. They're constantly learning. They're self-starters, uh, self-motivated, whereas the debt clients tended to be more focused on watching the latest soap opera or the latest TV show series that whatever is hit parade right now. And that's a gross generalization. But the idea being that one is constantly improving themselves and that has a compound effect on who you become, whereas the other is not doing that. And so that's a habit because the compound effect of constantly growing yourself, constantly improving your knowledge has such a large impact on your worth in society, what you can contribute and how that's valued in society and ultimately reflects itself financially. That's amazing. <laughs> I like, I like hearing both sides of it. Cause I think, you know, I've definitely seen examples of, of that, especially within the, especially within the mentality of being the victim of like, oh, this happened to me and, and, and sort of like removing our, our responsibility within any given situation, regardless of what that situation is. And I like the insurance piece around the health, because I think that it's easy for people to have that perspective when it's like, oh, this happened to me and I'm not responsible for it. And do you think that, that these components are things that that were mirrored to us as kids? Like, is this something that goes back to our family setting? Is that something that you talk about or that you encourage people to dive into? Is, is learning their sort of like wealth mindset that, that was instilled to them in their family life? One thing that really distinguishes my teaching is very practical. It's very practical. Mm -hmm. So 
I do have a process. It's in um, step four on how you take massive action because those personal beliefs can be obstacles to taking massive action. We'll get there in a second. So I do have a process. I take people through when relevant as a coaching client, but in general, I don't try to unpack it. So let me give you an example. So like when I'm coaching a client, I'm known for getting them right into action. Now, a lot of coaches, they'll sit there and they'll, and I'm not soliciting coaching, by the way, I'm sold out. I haven't accepted new clients for years, right? So I'm just giving an example here. So when I work with a client, I take them right to action. Why do I do that? Because words and actions are very different things. You know, people will say all they want, but there's a great saying, which is judged by results, often harsh, always fair. You always know the truth based on the results that are produced. And that connects back to self-responsibility. And so I like the contradiction between the two, what people say and what they do. So I take people straight into action and from action we learn. You can intellectualize stuff all you want, but your learning won't be nearly as dramatic if you go to action. Now, with that said, you always want to be careful with your risk management. And this is a principle in wealth building that goes to the root of how wealth compounds, which is the expectancy equation, right? Which is probability times payoff. Now, most people think in terms of probability, but Wealth actually compounds due to expectancy, not probability. And this is deceptive to most people because large negative payoffs have disproportionate uh, impact on results. And that's where risk management kicks in. Risk management is how you control large negative payoffs. And it's how you tilt the payoff portion of the equation to produce consistent wealth growth. Um, so it would be a whole conversation itself. But I just wanted to touch on the importance, essential importance of risk management in wealth growth. It's how you make higher highs and higher lows and consistently compound and grow your wealth. And one of the hallmarks of people who are very good at this game is they understand the principles of expectancy analysis and the role that risk management plays in managing your positive expectancy uh, and producing a positive expectancy versus kind of amateurs where, you know, the, the first word out of their mouth is not risk management. Like that's part of my due diligence process. I teach for analyzing investment managers. Mm. Good investment managers, the first focus is risk management because the essence of investing is you're putting capital at risk into an unknowable future. And so when you do that, how do you produce a positive outcome? And if anybody thinks they're going to do it without a focus on risk management, they're self-deluded or a liar. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that approach because I think you're right. Risk management should be at the very forefront. So what are some of the things that people need to know? Because I think that a lot of people, when it comes to finances, you know, are essentially amateurs. I would consider myself, albeit researched and st- yeah, researched and studied. I'm still 110% an amateur in, in many ways. And and that's after interviewing and speaking with people who are very fluid in this field. So so let's touch on risk management a little bit. And, and if you can just give some insight into what do people need to know, maybe at a basic level about risk management when they're looking at their investments, when they're looking at their savings. And, and let's just start there. Well, let's just look at it from a math standpoint, okay? Because all this stuff is you know, provable mathematically. It's not just Todd's opinion. I'm not just out here pontificating. It's, uh, it, this stuff's all proven mathematically and you can prove it by looking at the research and showing how people build wealth and how all this works. So anyway, the risk management side, let, let, let's just do it from the math standpoint, make it easy. Gains and losses are asymmetric. And what that means is that let's say, you know, you start with a hundred dollars and you lose 10%. So now you're down to 90 right? How much do you have to make to get back to even? 10 bucks. Yeah, 10 bucks. But in a percentage relationship, it's 11.1%, ah, right? So it's right, slightly right. asymmetric. A 10% loss equals an 11.1% gain to get back to even. And so then you start going down through the 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 role here. So 25% loss equals what percentage to get back to even? And sorry, this is this wasn't meant to be a math test. If you want me to just, <laughs> if you want me to just throw the numbers out, I will. If if you want to play with just me, toss I'll them out there, Todd. Just toss them out there. I was I was not a math major. Okay, so 25% loss equals 33% gain to get back to even. 50% loss equals 100% gain to get back to even. 900% loss equals 900%. I'm sorry, 90% loss equals 900% gain to get back to even. And so what you should notice is that the gains and losses to get back to even are asymmetric. So it uh, small increases in the amount of loss results in geometric increases in the amount of gain to get back to even. And so mathematically, what that implies is controlling losses is essential to your compound return equation, because we're not just talking about getting back to even in real life right? Because in real life, you've got other factors in here. You've got expenses, 
right? So let's say that you're trying to live off your wealth, which anybody who become who wants financial independence, one of their goals is to live off wealth. So you've got what's known in the industry as a safe withdrawal rate, right? So let's say you're pulling just to use a number, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Let's just say you're pulling 4%. And let's use a real life example of like the 2000 top in the stock market. So let's say you have like a 50% drawdown in your portfolio, but then you also are drawing 4%. Let's say it takes till 2012 for those, for the markets to get back to even. Again, these are all pretty close, accurate reality numbers. It's 12 years. So before you even adjust for volatility, that 4% spending rolls out to, you know, 50, 60% compound loss. And so the mar- the point is the market may come back to even, which is what, you know, the, all the buy and hold advocates will always tell you, right? The market always comes back. So the market may come back to even, but your portfolio may not. And what that shows is that the math of living off your assets is very different from the math of accumulating assets. They're different equations and they behave differently. When you want to live off your assets, risk management is absolutely paramount. And there's two reasons for that. It's not the big drawdowns. Like most people are really caught up in the big loss the you know that occur over a short period of time. So like the, the classic example is the 87 crash. The 87 crash in terms of wealth building and people who pursue financial independence was not that big of a deal because it came back quickly, right? It was a short aberration that came back very quickly. Where the real problem occurs is in prolonged periods of drawdown. So the example I gave from the 2000 top was 12 years before the S&P got back to even or grew to new highs. When you're living off your portfolio, that long time period is absolutely devastating. And that's why risk management is critical. You can't go prolonged periods without new gains. You have to learn how to produce more consistent gains in your wealth in order to live off your wealth. And again, all this is ruled by mathematics. It's just not my opinion. I, I actually stumbled into it the hard way because I was, I was well-versed in you know traditional financial planning when I quote-unquote retired. And I went retired and I went... Shit, this isn't the way it works. <laughs> you know, like, like here's reality, dude, slap in the face, you know? And I started learning the ropes, and that's where, like, my book, How Much Money Do I Need to Retire, came from. And then my course, which I teach wealth planning, is the step three course. But, you know, that segues to this thing. Remember, I was talking about how they're, they're paired, right? So, like, step three is how you design a plan to produce wealth in this lifetime, right? Hopefully sooner rather than later. And it's very different from a traditional financial plan, right? We can go into it if you want. And then step four is paired with it. It's the personal side. Now you have the plan. How do you take massive action on that plan? And this goes back to what I was saying about coaching, where I take people straight to action, right? Because that's where all the learning occurs. You don't really know the truth till you go to take action on the plan. And then you have to be able to correct and adjust it. And so that's what step four does is it shows you how to take massive action. Nice. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the plan because I think that a lot of people are without plans. In fact, I, I know that a lot of people don't really have a plan for their finances, for their investments, for their savings. And uh, I think that that's a, a crucial part. So let's dive into that. Yeah. So traditional financial planning, which is what most people think of when they talk about a financial plan, right? Where you go to your advisor, you sit across from a desk, he asks you about your risk profile, blah, 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 blah. And then they punch some numbers in and then out comes this beautiful glossy brochure that you prompt, you go home and put on a shelf and it collects dust and you never do anything with it. And the reason for that is that it's passive. It doesn't require anything of you. There's a whole premise behind traditional financial planning, which is you earn your wealth in your job, right? That's your wealth creation vehicle is your job or your business. That's where you earn your wealth. And then you spend money to support lifestyle and you pay your taxes. And then what's left over you save And then that savings is what accumulates into your wealth via this magical asset allocation formula that your financial advisor is privy to that you don't know anything about. And then, and that's how it goes. And so eventually you reach old age and you have this, you know, at the end of the rainbow is this wealth, right? If you follow the traditional plan. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. There's absolutely no process in life that is optimized through the passive approach, right? Whether it's your career, your health, your relationships. You can't name any major thing in life that's optimized to the passive approach and building wealth is no different. Um, but that's exactly what's being prescribed. The other problem too, is it's limited to the assets that a traditional financial planner can sell you, which is what I call paper assets, you know, so stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, that kind of thing. And in fact, there's actually three different asset classes you can work with in your wealth plan. Uh, you've got the traditional paper assets, which we already referred to, but you've also got business entrepreneurship, which you and I both participate in, as well as uh, direct ownership of real estate. 
And they're all viable assets for your wealth plan. And the unique thing that you want to understand about wealth planning done right, and this is what I teach in this course, is that you got to look at the individual characteristics of each of those asset classes. And you have to look at the skills, resources, and goals you bring to the wealth planning equation, and you have to match them. It's almost like Velcro, where the assets and the strategies you use in those assets act like the hooks, right? And then your needs your resources, your skills, your goals act like the loops. And wealth planning done right is where you connect the strategies with the with your needs, goals, and resources and put it together into a single wealth plan. And that's how you get the high probability creation of wealth. It's very different from traditional mm -hmm. planning. Yeah, I was going to say. And so is is one of our goals then to to aim to be able to invest in, in all three in, in terms of business and entrepreneurship entrepreneurship, uh, the paper assets, uh, and real estate? Like, is that something that- It's a great that, uh, question. Sort of you, usually, most wealth plans are two, some are three, right? So you'll usually, because there's a principle of diversification, which is valid. And so you'll typically want to diversify across two different asset classes in your wealth plan. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to structure wealth plans. Uh, we can go through a couple samples if you want or whatever. But it, all three may be a bit much for a lot of people. Um, you don't want to overwhelm people. The key point is to find a starting point that makes sense for your situation, your life and get started, get into action. Just as we've said a couple of times in this interview, and then you can add the other layers later on. Mm, and, and the access point, like the starting point for people, do you recommend usually that they, that they start in an area that they are somewhat knowledgeable about that they're already invested in? Like, where do you usually recommend or see as the strongest starting point for people? Actually, I have them choose their starting point. What I do is I educate them on the characteristics of the various assets. I, I educate them on how to connect them. And then from that, people naturally choose their starting point. I don't pick it because again, the course is designed so that it works for anybody taking the course. And it's taken me, you know, years to figure that out through coaching about how you structure it so people can find their way through it without me doing it for them. So I don't actually choose the starting point the client does. Nice. Yeah. Cause I would imagine that, I mean, it seems like a, most financial planners, when you go in and sit down with them, at least my experience. And when I've talked to, you know, a lot of my friends about their experiences is just them going in, sitting down with somebody and, and really getting prescribed something that they quote unquote should invest in. And that's almost never engaging because it's, you know, we're talking about um, our personal wealth and, and there should be some sort of aspect of us being engaged. I've noticed oh, that yeah. with myself, the more that I've, you know, got into some of these subjects like, you know, stocks and bonds and investing and, and even cryptocurrency to a certain degree, the more that I've gotten myself into it, the, even as, as scary and terrifying as, as it was in the very beginning, because I, you know, I didn't know shit, you know? So when you don't know anything, it can seem overwhelming because there's so much information out there. And so, you know, for the people that might be out there that, that are overwhelmed by finances or overwhelmed by wealth planning, you know, what's, what's some advice in terms of getting an easy access point for them where they can start to get engaged and, and start to educate themselves? Well, you have to start learning. You have to pick a source to learn from. Obviously, I'm hoping it's me. But, you know, I want to get to something you talked about earlier when you're going through this, because I think you're bringing up an important point, and I, I want to highlight it, which is this idea that traditional financial planning is a dependent relationship. It's all dependent upon the infinite wisdom of the advisor, right? And that's the role the advisor plays in your life is they're the financial genius. You're not, you know, you're just the guy that's supposed to go make money, save as much as you can by spending as little as you can, and then shovel it all his way so he can make you rich. And I've taken a completely different approach, which is to create an independent client. Um, you even heard it in my response to your question about where do you start them, right? And I said, well, actually, they choose based on the education I provide. I give them all the resources they need. They choose. Notice the difference there. Mine is very much about independence. And this is at the root of what financial freedom or independence is. You can never truly be financially free. You can never be free or independent when you're stuck in a dependent relationship. When your financial outcome is dependent upon the infinite wisdom of your advisor, that you don't have those resources within yourself, you're never truly independent. You're never truly free. And so I come from a place of education. Everything I do is education. As a matter of fact, my business operates under the education exemption within the financial advisory laws. Um, so you'll never see me make a stock recommendation. I don't sell investments. I have none of those conflicts of interest. It's all about educating independent clients so that they can make their own decisions. And 
you know, that's just, it works. So you act more of more like a fiduciary in, in a lot of ways. Well, no, not, technically not. Well, fiduciary puts, fidu technically a fiduciary is putting uh, the client's needs ahead of their own. Mm. I'm not even in that role, right? Because my needs aren't even part of it. I'm an educator, right? So it's not like I'm selling anything where my needs get in conflict with the client. The conflict doesn't even exist to begin with. Fiduciary laws exist to deal with conflicts of interest. I don't have the conflicts of interest to begin with. I sell education. People either get value from the education they bought and they buy more or they didn't and they don't, you know, <laughs> I like that. So it's, it's a really straight up equation. There's no conflict of interest, you know, and that's why I like the marketing on the website. It's all content marketing, right? So it's just walking the talk. It's all, I deliver education. People either get value from it and take the next step or they don't. It's good. So let's, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit about where people can start to look to invest their money. Because I think that in terms of wealth building, you know, you've talked about real estate, you've talked about business entrepreneurship and reinvesting back into that. Uh, and, and then you've talked about paper wealth, things like stocks, S&P index funds, you know, bonds, mutual funds, 401ks if you're in the States and RRSPs if you're in Canada. Where do you recommend people sort of start to look? Because I think that this is this is something where a lot of people are like, well, if I go look at stocks, there's a whole bunch of information I need to know about there. If I go look at, you know, my 401k or RRSPs, there's a whole bunch of information I need to know there. Is there something that is maybe a little bit more beginner for people to to sort of like dip their toe into the water. Yeah. So there's, first of all, it's widely, it's widely understood that low cost passive index asset allocation is a valid investment process. It's not efficient, but it requires almost no knowledge. I mean, everything you need to know about could be written in a paragraph with sentences left over, right? It's so simple. It's so brain dead simple. There's books on Amazon. You can learn it for a few bucks. You could probably learn it for free with a little fumbling around the internet, so that's a valid process. It's got a lot of risk involved. And from periods of high valuation, low interest rates, which as we record this in September of 2017, we happen to be at, you know, top, what is it, five or 6% of historic valuations in the US and lowest interest rates in all of recorded history. So at those periods, the expected return and risk profile are not very favorable. But, you know, that's only over like a, a seven to 15 year time horizon. Mathematically, it is valid. In other words, it does it does um, honor the principles of expectancy investing as I teach it. So that's a decent starting place just to focus on the savings. The other thing you can do is just save it and put it in interest bearing accounts until you know more. Um, the key thing is to start the savings equation and start the equity building equation through direct ownership of assets like business entrepreneurship and real estate. But, you know, there's another thing probably more important to get to, you know, I was trying to, first of all, respect your question by answering it directly. Now I'm going to answer it in sort of an indirect way at something that's a little bit deeper. There's an underlying false premise in your question, and I get this all the time, right? It's not just you. I'm not picking on you. And that is that what is the, the basic question is what's a good investment, Todd, right? I mean, is that fair, Connor? Yeah, I think it's a... Uh... Yeah. What's a, what's a good investment and where, where should people? Yeah, start? that's, that's, I get that question all the time and there's a, a false premise to it. And it, again, I've got a whole post on the site. People go look up, but basically there is no such thing as a good investment. What you're really looking for and nobody's teaching it is you're looking for a valid investment process that you can follow that produces a positive expectancy, right? Which then you can compound wealth with over time. And investments will come and go through that investment process. The key is the valid investment process. It, but most people aren't doing that. They're looking for product, not process. They want to know the answer, right? So like, how do I find Microsoft in its infancy? How do I find Google in its infancy? How do I find Apple when it was beaten down before Steve Jobs came back and took it from the ashes and turned it into one of the most valuable companies in the world? You know, how do I get that great stock play, Todd? That's what people are really wanting to know. And that's not really the answer they really, that's not the question they should be asking because nobody knows how to do that, right? If you did, you'd have amazing track records in the hedge fund industry and you'd have these investment managers producing amazing track records and the data tells you quite the opposite. There's a very narrow subset of stocks that produce almost all the gains. There's some research that came out recently and I'm going to butcher the numbers, but it's something like, you know, 99% of the gains came from like 1% of the stocks. It's, it's a crazy number like that. It defies all intuition. The bulk of stocks either went nowhere or went down and a tiny percentage of stocks were huge winners. And if you think you're going to run around and select those huge winners, you're completely self-deluded. And so stock picking is, is known to be extremely difficult. There's only a, 
a few at the very top end of the hedge fund industry where you can track by 13F filings where people actually are valid stock pickers. Uh, for the most part, it's just a very difficult game. So what you really want to do is you want to focus on finding a valid investment process that has a proven positive mathematical expectancy. And, uh, and then that's how you compound wealth over a lifetime. So in terms of a valid, <laughs> so how is that uh, valid financial process, <laughs> how is that for a mouthful, right? So, like, where do you run with that one? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like it. I like it. Uh, I mean, you know, this, this podcast is all about how, how we can better ourselves, not only as men, but as individuals. And so, you know, this is, this is a big part of it because I think the financial industry in a lot of ways for the average person is just a complete mystery. And so, you know, I think coming back to these sort of like fundamental questions, you know, uh, Elon Musk talks about, there's really only a few fundamental questions. And so I don't mind asking the wrong question if it gets us to the right one. So, you know, in terms of the, in terms of the process that we should be looking at, what direction should people sort of start with in terms of the process? Because it sounds like, you know, I think that's where S&P index funds come in, right? Because those are an accumulation of some of the top performing stocks that that are calculated and put together for you. And so that seems like a, a little bit of a easier, lower barrier to entry than maybe somebody trying to figure out which is going to be the next Google or Apple. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Why? I mean, if only a tiny percent of stocks cause the bulk of the gains in the indices, then why is it that the you know Dow Jones Industrial, the S&P 500 actually produce positive gains over time? So it's kind of an interesting question. Well, if you look at it, the S&P 500, despite the fact that it's thrown around as a passive index, is anything but passive. So it's an actively managed index. It's, capital, it's capitalization-weighted growth companies, right? And so they're constantly pruning companies out the deadwood, and they're constantly adding new growth companies in. And so eventually, those top performers end up in the index, and that's one of the reasons it works. So, you know, the idea that it's a passive index and you're investing passively, you may passively own it, but it's anything but a passive investment approach. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And then in terms of if we're just sticking with the, with the process that you've been talking about and the, the steps, I think we got to kind of like, I think we got to like step number four. So, so let's, let's carry on down the path if you're, if you're okay with that, unless there was something else that you wanted to cover before we move on. Well, that's the main point where we go, you know, pairing personal with financial, right? Was the foundation and then the plan and executing on the plan. And again, when you hear that, it's common sense, right? I mean, so yeah, my clients had to show this to me for me to map it all out. Uh, but when you hear it and you hear how it's put together, it's really obvious, right? I mean, is it any different from success in any other field where you're going to get the foundation right? You're going to get the found financial foundation right. You're going to, I mean, the height of a building, let's, let's just go into architecture and buildings. The height of a building is determined by the depth and strength of its foundation, right? So isn't that essentially what I'm doing? I'm saying if you're going to build this nice tall skyscraper of wealth, you've got to get your foundation right. Right. So you start with your financial foundation, step one, and then you get your personal foundation correct. Because believe me, if you get your personal foundation screwed up, you'll screw it up financially as well. Right. Because one reflects the other, which is what we were talking about earlier. And then, and then you go into the plan. Right. So, I mean, are you going to go build a house without a blueprint, without a plan that shows you the structure and how you put the thing together? Of course not. Right. You get a haphazard result. Well, it's the same thing with structuring your wealth. You have to have a structured plan that shows you the efficient path and it converts it down to daily and weekly and monthly actions so you know exactly what you should be doing at each step and how it all pieces together to form this perfectly designed building called your wealth, right? And so then we go into step four, which is, you know, now you have the plan, you have to take massive action, right? So isn't that like the skills of the carpenter? You know, what good is this blueprint if you don't have the resources, tools, and the action to convert it into an actual building? Fair enough, right? Mm. I mean, it's just really intuitively obvious once you see how it's put together. Step five is where we start to depart because step five goes in the investing part. Step five is a special form of investing I teach called expectancy investing. And it's all the stuff I developed back when I ran a hedge fund. So that's where I cut my teeth financially was I ran a hedge fund. I developed a quant a quant hedge fund. I was one of the founders of it back in the day. We sold it back in 97. That's when I became a financial educator. So that stuff I that I developed back then, I still use to manage my money that day to this day. And that's what I teach in the step five course. And then step six is not fully developed. It's investment strategies relevant for the wealthy. In other words, what happens once you become financially independent is 
you're not so much focused on growth as you are on converting it to income and you're focused on wealth preservation. And so the relevant strategies change. So step five is about the growth stage, whereas step six is about what happens once you're already wealthy. And then step seven brings it full circle. It basically says, now you're wealthy, so what? And it goes back to where we started this conversation, which is nobody wants more money. They want what they think money will bring them or what, what money will buy them. And the underlying value that almost everybody brings to this equation that cares enough to do something about becoming financially independent is they have a high value on freedom. And so you don't have to be rich to have freedom. And that comes back to where we started the conversation, which is what is wealth and what do you do with wealth? And so that's what I explore in step seven is this whole idea of personal freedom and living a personally free life. And so like in the wealth planning course, there's a piece that connects that where I teach about what I call the new retirement. You know, retirement planning is very daunting because it, you know, prescribes you to save millions of dollars under traditional models and all these things. And it's very, it's like this huge mountain that people have to climb and it's very difficult. But there's a concept called the new retirement where you structure your life totally different, where you get your financial house in order, uh, like we've been talking about, and you acquire a base of assets. And then you go into what we call the fulfillment stage of your career, which is focused on fulfillment, not wealth building. And then in that, you only have to make enough money to support the basic expenses in the mean, in the background, your wealth compounds uh, for that day when you're infirm and you can't pay your own bills. Um, so it's a very, it's a very different approach to financial planning that can get you to the freedom stage and the wealthy life stage much quicker. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you've got a, you've got a little ebook called uh, how much money do I need to retire? And I think that that's a big piece that a lot of people you know, like I said, our, our podcast is predominantly uh, men and women who are in their early to mid thirties who are, I, you know, a lot of them are really starting to look at what does this look like in my life? How am I going to build a retirement? And, you know, there's, there's people out there like Tim Ferriss who preached, you know, the, what is it? The, the new rich or something like that. I can't remember what he, what he, what it's, what he calls it. I think it's the new rich back in the four hour work week, how a lot of people are just looking to make monthly income over, you know, sort of stockpiling this massive amount of wealth and trying to retire early. And so I think, you know, our generation has started to shift a little bit and look at what yeah. is, you know, what does wealth mean? How do I so acquire I it? That, just so, just so we, we put a name, I call it, I don't call it the new rich. I call it the cash flow based model. Right. So what mm. I do in that book is I go through three different models. I go through the traditional model, which is an asset based model, which is the premise of the question. How much money do I need to retire? Mm -hmm. Right. People are basically asking how big of a nest egg do I have to accumulate? And then I go through two other models. I go through the lifestyle model, which is there's a, a group out there called the fire bloggers or financial independence, retire early bloggers. And they tend to go towards the extreme frugality side. Um, but there's ways, basically the concept is the rule of 300, which is for every thousand, uh, that you want to spend per month, it requires anywhere from about three to $400,000 in assets to support. And so you start looking at lifestyle adjustments and really creatively planning your lifestyle to reach the goal much earlier than old. So that's model two. And then model three is the cash flow based model. Now the cash flow based model is really powerful because it doesn't require any of the arcane assumptions of traditional uh, retirement planning. I mean, when you think about retirement planning, I, I was amazed because in the hedge fund, I was, I was a quant investor. I developed quantitative models for risk management and statistical market timing. And so I had to learn a thing about what makes a valid model versus, you know, what's robust and what's going to break down in real time. And I was shocked when I went in and looked at traditional retirement planning because it's making like every mistake in the book. You know, let's just look at the assumptions required when you go to a, a retirement calculator. You know, you're supposed to estimate your life expectancy. Now, that's an absurdity, right? That works for the IRS <laughs> and that works for insurance companies where they have an actuarial reality, right? They have a large sample size. But for you and me, it's a binary result, right? We, we get one death and it can come randomly, right? I, I mean, I could die shortly after, I could die in the middle of this podcast, right? Or I could die 40 years from now. They're both, one is more likely than the other. And so, yeah. you know, for you to estimate the life expectancy of you and your spouse as part of your retirement plan is an absolute absurdity. It just, it can't be done. And then here's another one you're supposed to do. You're supposed to estimate inflation. And let's say you're just doing your retirement plan. You know, you say your group is 30s, 40s, that kind of thing. So you're going to estimate inflation for 40 to 60 years, right? I mean, that's a laughable joke when you think about it, because 
the economists who spent their entire career studying inflation can't even get it right one year into the future. And you're supposed to estimate it 50 years into the future? It's an absurdity. It's impossible. There's so many variables that go into inflation. There's so much that's going to change between now and 50 years from now that the chances of your guess at inflation even coming anywhere close to reality is pure random luck. And yet that number is a key number in retirement planning because that's what's one of the, what I call one of the compound numbers. Okay, there's a couple numbers in here that are absolutely key to your retirement plan. One is that it's, they're actually ratios. It's the percent you save relative to how much you, percentage savings of your income, right? So how much you spend versus how much you save out of your income. That's one of the key numbers. That's the early stage key number in the life cycle of building wealth. The second stage key number is your return on investment minus inflation. Those two numbers is all you have to know for retirement planning because those two numbers will make or break every retirement plan, right? And so here people are being asked to estimate inflation 50 years in the future. It's totally absurd. And yet every retirement plan absolutely relies on it. And if you're off by a percentage point or two, it will completely change your results to where basically results were useless. And same thing with your investment return. You're supposed to estimate investment return for, you know, 20, 30, 50 years into the future. Fat chance. <laughs> yeah, I like it. So, so, so basically the whole idea of building like this massive nest egg, it sounds like that isn't necessarily the most viable option, but it's about having, it's about having a stream of, of passive incomes that are, that are going to provide you with wealth throughout the entirety of your life. It sounds like that's one of the major pieces that well, you advocate. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? That's how we define financial independence and isn't retirement nothing more than old age financial independence. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so that's one model. As I said, there's actually three models. And what I do, you'll find something that's unique about when I teach this stuff is I don't go into, this is right, that's, I mean, I do have right, wrong, like on things that are blatantly absurd. But in terms of these three models, the way I teach it is that they all show you different pieces of the puzzle. So there's no one right answer because they're all predicated upon a future that's unknowable. And so all you can do is look at it, look at the question from different angles. And that's why I give you all three models. So you can look at it from the asset-based model. You can look at it from the income-based model. And you can look at it from the lifestyle model. And from those three models, you can get pretty darn comfortable. Like you can, fig you can start to see how the pieces move and what you can do in your life to adjust them to, to make it work for you. Yeah, I like I like it. I like that you have it customized in a way that people can start to like really understand what works for them because I think that obviously people in, you know, lower financial brackets are going to need to do something a little bit different or perceptually think that they're going to need to do something a little bit differently. I mean, isn't that what everybody's shooting for, right? We've all seen the I think it was ING was the bank that put out the commercials where people had a red number on their forehead, you know, and then suddenly the number would hit jackpot <laughs> right. and they're they're financially independent. You know, that's a myth. There is no magic number because that magic number is only known in the future when it's too late to do anything about it. And so you're always dealing with these approximations of reality based on assumptions. And by, by massaging it from various angles, you can start to see where true north is, right? So you can at least sail towards true north. Do you think that some people uh, get in their own way by having this sort of like magic number? Because it seems like a lot of people have that where it's like, well, if I only had X million dollars, then I could retire and just live totally. off that and everything would be okay. Do you think that that gets in, gets in the way of a lot of people actually starting their savings properly and, and learning about it because it seems overwhelming? Yeah, exactly. It's it's too big of a number. It feels too daunting. And so they don't actually embrace the process and, and take action. And again, as I've said numerous times in here, it's all about taking action you know, and then adjusting and you know, taking action in the context of a well thought out plan. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have to adjust on that. And so what happens is people are overwhelmed because it just seems like too big of an elephant. Right. So what you want to do is you want to take that elephant and break it down into digestible bite-sized chunks, you know, and that, that's what you do in the step three courses is break it down so that you can take action on it. But yeah, that's, it totally gets in the way. And a lot of the myths get in the way. People make it sound really complicated. It really, when you understand it, it's not that complicated and it, it is accessible to normal people. It's, it's not rocket science if it's explained properly. I mean, there's some stuff you have to learn and there's some math behind it, but it's, it's like high school algebra. 
You know, I mean, it's it's totally accessible and doable if you care enough to figure it out. I like it. And in terms of, I mean, you've been around in the financial industry for a while. How have you seen the financial sector shift, especially, you know, through the financial collapse in 2008 and some of the other things that have that have gone on uh, from a political standpoint, from, you know, the shift in Democrats to the Republicans coming in and tax laws changing and all that other kind of stuff. How have you seen things change? And I have a follow-up question for the future. Well, compression of margins, right? You're getting more and more power to the individual consumer. So, you know, like in my day when I was in the business, it was, uh, you know, when Merrill Lynch, when, what was it? When, when EF Hutton speaks, people listen, right? Like it was all the days of the high, high cost individual brokers and, and they would have recommended stock portfolios and people would have their stock portfolio, you know, and then you went to institutionalization of money management through mutual funds, which lowered costs. And then you had um, uh, discount brokers come on the scene, which further lowered costs. And most recently had robo advisors. So now you're getting to where you can have a properly diversified portfolio if you want to follow a traditional passive model. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just not efficient, but it works. You can you can get, you know, robo advisors. You can get almost down to zero fees which is unheard of, right? I mean, it's a great time to be an investor in that sense. It's a horrible time in terms of valuation because of government manipulation. But the compression of margins has been a consistent pattern throughout the industry. And I don't see it stopping. It's just going to get tighter and tighter and tighter as people find more efficient models for managing money. Yeah. And, and in terms of, in terms of like the robo advisors, you know, platforms like Wealth Simple, uh, which is a Canadian platform, I think they... They manage upwards of like seven to ten billion dollars, something like that. But there's there's a lot of these platforms that are now out. What what's your take on them, and how do you see them shift in the industry? Do you think that they are? Do you think that they're a benefit to the average person, or do you think that it just allows the average person to not educate themselves on uh, on how to actually build wealth in their life? Well, th- there's layers to this. I mean, we could almost do a whole podcast on that question because <laughs> you know here's the here's the good news. Okay, the one proven documented thing that leads to outsized returns over time is lower costs, right? So controlling costs is an essential part of the investment equation. Now, robo-advisors don't own that space, right? That space was pioneered by Vanguard long before, of which Vanguard has the largest robo-advisor in the industry. So, you know, controlling costs is completely valid, Okay. And that's kind of the premise of passive, uh, low cost passive index investing is it's the low cost alternative. That's why it works. Okay. Cause basically what happens is active investing has a hard time, uh, producing results in excess of costs. Those costs are a huge, uh, problem. Now, with that said, does robo advisors, you know, passive investing in itself is what I will call the flavor of the day. And this is going to cause all kinds of people to get really mad, but I'll stand by it. If you want, Document proof. Just go look at and and research. There's a book. It's free online because it's out of copyright. Uh, it was a bestseller in 1935. It's called Your Battle for Investment Survival by Gerald Loeb. That's L O E B, and Gerald is with a G, G E R A L D. Gerald Loeb wrote the book Your Battle for Investment Survival. Now you got to look at that date, 1935. That's after the Great Depression. You know where the major indexes lost like 80 percent of their value, and you know people just got wiped out. Right. And so if you think people are going to go advocate low cost, passive index investing back then, you know, you'd be strung up by your toenails. Um, the only person that would buy a book advocating that would be your mother, you know? And so, so he put out a book that represented the flavor of the day, which was all about active investing and selecting and, you know, trading in and out based on trends and all these different things. And you can read the book. It's free online. Nobody's going to make any money off you on it. And so what that book does and why I recommend clients read it is it really rattles them from the current dogma. The current dogma is a reflection of the market conditions that preceded it. And so the current dogma is low-cost passive index buy and hold investing. And I'm not saying it's wrong or right. It just is what it is. It has certain characteristics, just the same thing I've advocated on all the assets and all the strategies. They have characteristics, some of which are positive, some of which are negative. It is a valid strategy and that has a positive mathematical expectancy. And that's one of the reasons it's gotten academic support and has taken hold as well as it has in people's minds. It's also extremely simple to execute. And so people can understand it. And so they feel like they, they get it. 
Um, but there's a lot behind it. There's times where it makes the risk reward is favorable. There's times where risk reward is unfavorable. So it's advocated as an all weather strategy, but it's really not. It's a strategy that works under specific conditions quite well. And it's a strategy that works quite poorly under other conditions. So anyway, because we've had the conditions in the past, really almost since, you know, 1980, because you've got a, a, you know, 35 pushing 40 year bull market and bonds. And you've got so almost a one-way market in bonds, and you've got uh, predominantly bull market in stocks where you've gone from low valuations to high valuations. So it's defined as valuations. Um, that's put a tailwind under this strategy and has made the numbers look quite good. There will be a day when that changes, and when it does, then the dogma will change as well. So anyway, the reason I connected that was, you know, robo-advisors are all, you know, passive, low-cost passive index is the premise mm. of them. And so you're, you're running off a robo-advisor. And so they will succumb to the same issue everybody else does when that strategy is no longer the optimum strategy. Right. Right. And then my, my last question here is because we've got to start wrapping it up for time's sake. Um, just to, around cryptocurrency, and I would love to get your insight as somebody <laughs> who is, I, and I, and you know, it's not something that you necessarily dive into or teach, but I'm curious as to get your perception on, you know, is that going to shift the markets at all? Is it something that you think will stick around for a while or yeah, just what, what, what's your insight on that? Well, I love blockchain technology. Okay. I think blockchain technology, mm. which is, you know, behind cryptocurrency is genius and it's going to have huge impacts going forward and particularly in the financial industry in terms of cryptocurrency, it's laughable to me. And the reason why is anyone can create one. And so, you know, one of the definitions of problems with currency is, you know, the cause of inflation is when anybody can create it, right? I mean, the government creates too much currency and it creates inflation as monetary phenomenon. So anyway, I think it's pretty funny that people are all enamored with cryptocurrency, but then you've got every Johnny Lunch Bucket creating their own version of cryptocurrency. And so what the heck is that? You know, like where, where is the value when anyone can create one? I just, I just think the whole thing's almost laughable. It's, it's going to get shaken up is the fact that you're asking me is almost proof positive of the fact that it's, you know, it's already reaching some sort of proportionate problem because, you know, I always get asked these questions at the top. So like in, in the 19, late 1990s, I always got asked about tech stocks. Everyone wanted to know about the ne next, next great tech stock because we were in the dot-com bubble. And now in hindsight, it looks funny, right? And so, and then you go into like 2006, from about 2005 to 2007, everybody and their grandmother wanted to get rich in real estate. And every time I was on an interview, everybody would ask me about real estate, right? And I don't get any questions about it now. And I didn't get any questions in 2010. I mean, to give you a flavor back then, it was the belief that real estate would never go down. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. People actually believe real estate can never go down, even though it's an asset where price is determined by supply and demand. It was, it was firmly believed real estate never goes down. And that's because it's in a leverage play on inflation, right? And inflation is predominant. But anyway, we're getting off track. So, you know, now, you know, and there'll be a day when, you know, I've had, I've, I've had gold bull markets and people are always talking to me about gold during gold bull markets. And they don't ask me right now because it's not in a bull market. And so now cryptocurrencies is the flavor of the day, right? It's the hot new sexy topic. And so the fact that I get asked, it tells you something not so positive. <laughs> I like it. Well, I appreciate your insight because I think it's one of those things where, you know, especially within the financial industry and with, with wealth building, I see a lot of people who jump on bandwagons around get rich quick, not schemes or anything like that, but it's just, it's like our human nature, right? That as soon as, as soon as we have the perceived opportunity to make a shit ton of, a shit ton of money in a very short period of time, people inevitably be, inevitably buy into that. And I've seen a lot of people lose a ton of money because of that. And so it's, you know, and I've had a guy on the podcast about cryptocurrency and, and it was interesting because he did, he talked favorably about things like Bitcoin and, and, and the currency itself. But what he was really an advocate for was the blockchain yeah. tech and that's, and that side of things. And, and that was where he kept steering the conversation. Yeah. So no, I'm, and I'm agreeing the blockchain tech is really cool stuff, right? That's going to get adopted widespread in the financial industry. It's going to be a revolution. However, cryptocurrencies themselves, there's going to be some learning to go here still. This is a very immature market that's got a lot of people really excited. It's an accident waiting to happen.
Yeah, well, incredible, Todd. So thank you so much for uh, joining me on the Man Talks podcast. And uh, for all the listeners that are out there, check out the show notes. Uh, we've got all the links to some of the things that we talked about uh, from Todd's books, eBooks, uh, the courses that are in there, and just his website in general. He's got some great articles that you should definitely go check out. I was reading some of them uh, before we jumped on today. So definitely go check that out. Uh, Todd, anything else that you would like uh, our listeners to check out to learn more about you? Well, no, the site is financialmentor.com. That's two words smashed together to make one, financialmentor.com. And I just have a ton of free resources. The idea is, you know, come on over and just see if the message resonates with you. I give away a free book to new subscribers called 18 Essential Lessons of a Self-Made Millionaire. I have a free e-course for new subscribers where it takes you through the whole framework of achieving financial independence. The cost is zero. You just subscribe and and either the message resonates with you and you want to take it the next step with paid courses and books or you don't. Um, So there's no harm in trying. And that's all over at financialmentor.com. Awesome. Thanks very much, Todd. And for the other listeners that are out there, uh, if you found this interview very, uh, very helpful, very interesting, don't forget to man it forward and recommend it to a friend who might need to listen to this, who might benefit by listening to this. And don't forget to head on over to iTunes and subscribe, leave us a review. It goes a long way into getting this podcast and other podcasts into the ears and onto the phones of other people. Uh, This is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. 